This is Hacker Public Radio episode 3279 for Thursday the 25th of February 2021. Today's show is entitled, Linux in Laws S01E24, Legacy Programming Languages and is part of the series, Linux in Laws, it is hosted by Monochrome, and is about 54 minutes long, and carries an explicit flag. The summary is, the two chaps discuss why history keeps repeating itself in programming languages, and beyond. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. Linux in Laws, a podcast on topics around free and open source software, any associated contraband, communism, the revolution in general, and whatever else fancies your tickle. Please note that this and other episodes may contain strong language, offensive humor, and other certainly not politically correct language. You have been warned. Our parents insisted on this disclaimer. Happy mum! Thus, the content is not suitable for consumption in the workplace, especially when played back on a speaker in an open plan office or similar environments. Any minors under the age of 35 or any pets, including fluffy little killer bunnies, your trusted guide dog, unless on speed, and cute T-Rexes or other associated dinosaurs. Hi, Martin. How are things? Hey, Chris. How are things? Things are great and wonderful. Excellent. Um, today's, so today's, this episode is all about Martin upon the special request of a soul, of a soul co-host. Yes, Martin. Hang on a minute. Yes. Oh, is there another co-host? What's going on here? <laughs> no, Martin, this would be you. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you put this in. Yes. Ah, yes. I remember now. Wow. Yes. Brilliant programming languages and their, uh, Mediocre modern counterpart. <laughs> the official title of the show actually was something more like legacy programming languages, but that's okay. <laughs> it is. There you go. So, which, what are you going to cover tonight, Chris? Well, let's talk about legacy programming languages, legacy okay. programming languages, and how they affect modern hipster languages, okay. like C. Maybe Pascal, maybe Modular 2 or something. Well, you got to define what's a legacy language in that case. Anything until you were born, I suppose. That makes it mid-60s. <laughs> no? <laughs> I don't think that counts. Yeah. Um, 
So, in that no, case, it's, you would define legacy uh, and we go by it. That's okay. No, no, but I mean, you could, you can't say it's seized legacy because it's still being used. Legacy would be something that's um, no longer used and obsolete. Well, that's true, perhaps, actually, yes. Well, maybe. But some mm. of the programming languages that we're going to cover only live in certain isolated biotops, right? Biotops, is that, is that the word I'm looking for? Well, it's generally... Ecosystems. A, 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 yeah. Ecosystems yes, yes. is probably... So, for yeah. example, <clears throat> COBOL, never mind ALGO, Cobol. we're going to cover that in a minute. I'm not is... calling COBOL, by the way. <laughs> about I am, but don't, 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 don't worry about this. <laughs> I mean, you you'll be hard pressed or hard pushed to find anything, any application written in COBOL running not on a, not running on a mainframe. Mm. Indeed. However, these applications have been running there for many, many years, very successfully, stately uh, and happily, right? So, absolutely. So could because, you call it a legacy language in that case? A- absolutely, because the people who wrote them are long dead. <laughs> and you'll be and you'll be hard pushed to find anybody who can maintain the code. Just take a look at any general ledger on running on a mainframe driving your ordinary bank, right? Mm-hmm. People do a lot in order not to touch the code base. Yeah. Any new functionality is normally implemented in in systems surrounding these general ledgers it's, it's because the because the general ledgers have been implemented about, or were implemented rather, about what, 30 years ago, 40 years no. ago. Solid code base has been tested to death. You do not want to change a running system. Hmm. So if, don't change, so why would you? <laughs> exactly. So if you need new functionality, you basically put a system in front of it, and then this new system does what the, what you would normally incorporate in, in, in general ledger, no? No, no. The systems around it are more to enable like your personal banking apps and that kind of nonsense, right? So mm. it um, it's not actually changing the ledger itself. So yeah. So would yeah. so, you? So you're saying Cobol's legacy language? Yes. Again, sorry. What was that? You are saying Cobol is a legacy language? Oh, absolutely. For which and how do you define this legacy language? This. As, in, as I said, legacy language um, for the purpose of this podcast episode is probably okay. anything that was invented before the 70s. Aha. So are we saying that computers are also legacy? Well, yes, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Why? Well, there, uh, <clears throat> that's probably a lot of people that would not agree with that statement. But anyway, it doesn't matter. It's just a, a matter of definition. So for tonight's episode, anything legacy is uh, anything your age and older. <laughs> Thank you, Martin. Yes. <laughs> for the purpose of discussion, let's assume that. Yes. Okay. Excellent. All right, then. So so Martin is going to cover Elgo. I'm going to cover COBOL, and that will be the shortest Linux uh, Linux Inos episode ever, because essentially we're done after that. Oh, we could talk about programming language in general as well. Yes, we could. We, we did a, <clears throat> a comparison one earlier. Um, okay, so so let's start actually with plan calcul. How about which is you know right plan calcul? Why don't we start with the beginning? I'm just doing this. Plan Calcul was actually a programming language that a certain Konrad Zuse invented and that ran on a something called a Z3. Well, this, okay, so this programming language would, um, 
level the the playing field or whatever you want to call it uh, from assembler, right? Invented in the I think early forties, late thirties or something, when Zuse was just putting together set three, essentially in a, a collection of tubes held together held together by wire. Most people consider that, consider that to be the first iteration of something called what is known as now as a computer. Uh, I think you'll find there were predecessors to that. <laughs> True. Uh, I'm, anyway, I'm, 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 I'm talking probably about machines right now. <laughs> <laughs> as a machine driven by electricity, not, 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 not some other stuff. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So. So let's so let's skip any, plan calcul. Any experts out there? <laughs> no, Martin. <laughs> what, what were the um, because uh, these people uh, would be now eighty years old or something? I don't know. What were the, uh, Maybe ninety of this um, language. Hmm? What were the characteristics of this language? Sure, it ran on a Z three. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Okay. okay. Simple hmm. as that. Of course, people, you find the links in the show notes in case somebody wants in case somebody wants to dig up a Z3 emulator and run Polarcalcule on it. Mm. No, it still exists. Okay, cool. Okay. Yes, uh, before we leave Polarcalcule, actually, mm-hmm. um, as I said, you, you will find the links in the show notes. Polarcalcule goes back to something, I think it was called, um, bear with me, a Lambda Calculus. Invented in the 30s by, I think, Alonzo Church and Stephen Clean. And essentially, it's a, what's it called? What's, what's the word I'm looking for? Pretty much like comparable or something to, to Prolog. It was a, it was a, a equation solver, more or less, that ran on a Z3. Right. You mean a calculator? Uh, yes. More, Prolog is a little bit more than that. Prolog is a formal theory improver, I think, but we'll cover that in a minute if we don't fall asleep before. <laughs> okay. Okay, what came next? I reckon Fortran and Cobalt are pretty much alike, right? Uh, 50s. Yeah, I think you're right. There. And uh, the idea at that stage was actually, um, I think, both were developed by, by IBM initially. Fortran was taken over by some sort of committee, I think. This and this stuff like this, I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, links, of course, in the show notes. So if anybody wants to read up on this, uh, you find the links in the show notes. The thing is that at the time, I think you had this notion of computers looking for a use case. So the machines at the time, and you're talking 50s here, and uh, not necessarily just ran by, just just built on transistor, on, on a transistor basis, but rather still kind of um, working with cubes and stuff, <coughs> or relays for that matter. We're doing simple calculations, and the idea behind both behind COBOL and Fortran was actually to put to 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 introduce an abstraction layer from assembler. So mm-hmm. COBOL standing for Common Business Oriented Language, and Fortran I think for Formula Translator. The idea was to use something closer to something called the English language in order to implement algorithms rather than doing that in December. And the hint with COBOL is in the name. In contrast to Fortran, is what it was much more oriented at 
Not necessarily mathematical equations, but rather um, batch processing, record transactions, and all the rest of it. Hence the name. Common business-oriented language, COBOL. Good name. Yeah, Fortran obviously being more prevalent in the academic circles. Um, Funny enough, Fortran is still used today, even outside mainframe environments. Because if you take a look at some of the high-performance stuff that is still written in Fortran these days. Like? Some stuff in signal processing, for example, that you cannot do in C, or that you don't want to do in C. Um, I can recall some coming across some embedded systems that where, where people, for some reason, chose Fortran over C. Okay. Probably has to do with, with um, floating-point arithmetic or something like this. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you still can get very performant co- uh, Fortran compilers. The uh, GNU, of course, has a front-end. Links on the show notes. And most of the people consider GNU Fortran as one of the best Fortran compilers for Linux and other open-source systems on the market at, the, at this point in time, I suppose. It's an outside-the-mainframe world. What are these mainframes you keep talking about? Um, they go back to something called the early computers. I mean, three six uh, thirty six was invented mid sixties, and they are still an architecture that that is still around. In contrast to all the PDPs eleven of the world, all the vaxes, they are gone. Mm. But mainframes, for some reason have managed to linger linger on. I mean, IBM still makes a lot of money with selling something, the, which was selling, with selling something called System Z these days that has been around for the last 60 plus years, essentially more or less. I mean, it comes in, in, in a different package these days and it runs links and all the rest of it. But if you take a very hard, code, very hard, cold, close look, it's still that mainframe architecture that IBM invented in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> I've stayed away from mainframes all my life. Uh, but then you're one of these okay. young hipster ones, right? I am an old hipster, let's put it that way. <laughs> Excellent. So Martin drinks coffee all day long, goes to fancy coffee places if they're open, if they're not. He can't go there. No, 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 I don't live in California. <laughs> And talks about Rust, what's it called, Julia, Kotlin, and all these other fancy yeah, languages. Yeah. Scala, yeah. Scala, yes, of course. Oh, yeah. So, Martin, on to your favorite subject as an Algol 68, or Algol in general, anyway. Yeah, uh, Algol 68 is the only one I'm familiar with, not its predecessor. <laughs> um, anyway, Algol standing for Algorithmic Language. Yes. Case um, for the uh, hipsters amongst us that are not aware of this. Um, yeah, so Algol 68 was success, successor to Algol 60, right? So Correct. Um, also running on mainframes at the time, I might add. Yes, but it, well, you can still get a, um, uh, Algol, um, uh, interpreter these days running on Windows if you're interested. Ab- absolutely. And not on Linux, to, yeah, to be But fair. what's Windows? Hmm. It's an operating system. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Do continue, please, <laughs> Mr. Wizard. When was the last time you used Windows? 
Let me check my records. <laughs> okay. Yeah, just checking. Curious fact. Anyway. Um, yeah, so... Um, it was a very standard space language of pages and pages of the stuff that... Um, uh, Nobody cares? Wrote. Well, there was a lot of complaints about it um, at the time, and a certain uh, guy was so upset with it all that he decided to make his own language, which was the opposite of alcohol. <laughs> um, I think, was he German? I don't know. I think he was German. Um, Who are you referring to? Uh, Wirth, Wirth, whatever his name is. No, actually, he's Swiss. Or Swiss? he was Swiss. Okay, Nic- fair enough. Nic- Nicholas Wirth, you're, talking, you're yes, talking about. Yes, 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 yes. So, yeah, he... Um, so what did Mr. Vert do then? Oh, he he, he created Pascal, right? Because oh, he did, he did many other things too. <laughs> probably, probably. But yeah, that was his main... Um, yeah. Uh, in, in relation to Algol, that was his contribution to leave the project and start Pascal. Yes. Hmm. Any particular feature or trait that Algol's that Algol that the Algol family of languages is, is, is known for or is famous about? Famous for, sorry. Well, it's quite a few. I mean, the nice thing uh, about it is, well, there's a lot of nice things about it, actually. Um, <laughs> one is that you can use uh, a proper begin and end rather than uh, squiggles and all that kind of nonsense, which become completely unreadable. So... That's so, yeah. So great language for people who like to type. Okay, I get it. Well, it, okay. So languages aren't just for people who type, right? Okay, let's get this right. <laughs> so, so just developing a program isn't um, the only purpose of programming. The all right. Well, we can. Mm, that's okay. Why don't we extend this to the um 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 standards of programming that people may or may not have. Very good. Very, very good observation, Martin. So let's start with the classification, shall we? So Algo is is known for, similar to Fortran and, and COBOL, for its imperative paradigm. Mm-hmm. Care to elaborate or should I do this? I'm happy either way. Oh, why don't you do this one? Imperative programming language just basically means you tell the compiler what to do and what way to do it and, and, and the way to do it in terms of uh, there's no deduction from the compiler side, unlike, for example, Prolog. It's, it's, it's a basic construct as in it understands uh, blocks, com- what's the word I'm looking for? Components? Compounds? Compounds, is that the word? So essentially, I think it's it's one of the lowest levels of of abstraction you find in programming languages. Like, for example, you can define functions, you can define procedures, but in contrast to other paradigms like object orientation and all the rest of it, mm. you have to do pretty yeah. much everything yourself. Hence the name. Correct. Um, Whereas, for example, object-oriented programming languages know how to do polyformism and, and and encapsulation and so forth. These these imperative languages normally don't. Hmm. Yep. yep. Okay. okay. Uh, no, I was no. never a fan of, of object orientated programming. I have to say. Hence. We co- we cover that in a minute. <laughs> okay. Okay. Cool. Okay. So.
so Algo, Coba, and Fortran, I reckon, would be kind of the three initial examples for imperative languages. And I'm talking about the original languages, not necessarily the, the add-ons that came later. Of course, you can get object-oriented flavors of both Fortran and COBOL these days. Mm. Whether, whether people use them is, of course, a different story. <laughs> and what is also important, uh, yes... Nicholas Wirt is famous for two languages, Pascal, namely Pascal and mod something called Modular 2, which, Modular which, two, Modular, yes, which most people, I reckon, consider as the successor to Pascal. Both languages, not necessarily were the first ones, but both languages introduced the, the notion of structured programming. Because, for example, especially Modular 2 and the hint is in the name, you could at that stage, and we're talking late 60s, early 70s with Pascal at least, modular, I think it's in, it's, it's, it's in the mm. 70s. Modular 2 allowed you to break down a, an application into modules, which in turn consisted of procedures and functions. Mm. And these set procedures and functions in terms of consisted of stuff you would normally find in your imperative language. Indeed. Like loops, if then else clause and all the rest of it. But the idea behind modular two especially was to introduce modules like libraries and packages and stuff that you were then able to use to compose. And this is now the hint to reuse algorithms. Yeah. Um, I can't think of any successes from Modular 2, can you? No, not as mm. far as I know. I mean, yeah. all of these languages were highly influential of what came later, like object-oriented language and all, rather, and, and, and all the rest of them. Mm. I mean, reuse is essential. Well, is, yeah. is one of the essential notions behind object-oriented uh, programming I, languages. I don't, no, I disagree with that. I mean, reuse is, is um, <clears throat> essential to any programming language. I mean... As long as you have procedural functions, where you split it into packages or modules, fine. But um, uh, yeah, reuse is reuse, right? Um, so that's—I mean, object-oriented paradigm or whatever you want to call it—is uh, yeah. To me, it's a bit of a uh, let's have an object and think of all the methods that you can perform on it, rather than just writing it. I mean, you know, <laughs> Okay, Pro progressing further, what differentiates <clears throat> in, in, in an object or a language from a structured programming language approach? Like the difference between modular two and say small talk. Small talk, oh my god, that was um, only, small talk is, is the only time I ever used that was university. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> This is basically what happens if you fall in with the wrong crowd, Martin. <laughs> Did anybody actually use this in real life? <laughs> oh, ab oh, absolutely. Okay. You cool. find link in the show. You find links in the show notes. But small talk about thirty years ago, make okay. that forty years ago, was really en vogue. Mm -hmm. Quite a few large code systems, and as I said, you find the link in the show notes. But there was. I can't even remember. But at the time, I came across some, some large code base that, that were written in Smalltalk. Okay. And Smalltalk being, of course, one of the first object-oriented languages yes. de developed developed at something called, I think, PARC, right? Don't know. As in Xerox Par, um, Palo Alto Research Center. Ah, 
I just remember it from university. Yes! <laughs> being a very annoying piece of uh, part of the study that one had. No, I mean, what, 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 is the, or what are the general notions behind object-oriented languages in, in, in comparison to other languages, Martin? Any, 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 any guesses? Well, the object divines the methods. Um, I think that's probably the... Uh, yeah, that's how I would describe it. Uh, well, yes and no. First of all, you have classes. Classes mm -hmm. define different levels of, of, of abstractions. Yeah, uh, well, it's, languages. It's like a hierarchy of. of yeah, okay. Yes, this yeah. is the important bit. And languages like Java take this one step further because the original Smalltalk implementation didn't allow, for example, uh, to to define something called interfaces, whereas whereas most modern object-oriented languages basically define define interfaces or abstract base classes like C plus plus Java and all and, and all the rest of them. The idea behind the initial object-oriented paradigm was to provide a generic class and then derive more specialized behavior in so-called derived classes. Mm -hmm. In example, you have a generic class called fruit and classes deriving from this basic, from, from, from this, from this uh, generic base classes like apple, like banana, different shapes, different form. Other fruits are um, available. Yeah. Other fruits are available too, exactly. <laughs> um, or Different, uh, or, 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 cherry, or another cherry. example, yes, or another example would be a vehicle, right? You have a generic business called vehicle, mm. essentially defining methods or member functions as they're known in C++, mm. like start, stop, drive, steer, that sort of thing. And then drive class like car, boat, plane would implement these functions in a different way. Mm -hmm. Because planes, for example, do not, well, planes do have wheels, but boats, not, but boats normally don't. So to steer a boat or to accelerate or slow down a boat would be quite different from doing that with a car. So the idea is to provide different level of, different levels of abstraction through derived classes. Mm -hmm. And needless to say, the idea behind the general approach was to increase the level of reuse. So, for example, if you have, um, and you can, and, and the idea was also to encapsulate certain common behavior in set base classes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and only to implement the differences in the draft classes so that you actually, if you want to introduce a third vehicle like a bicycle, you would only have to implement the stuff that is not already present in the base class. Yep. Yep. Exactly my point. Yeah, and of course, Smalltalk was was one of the first languages that introduced something uh, like a meta level, You're creating this all these levels of abstract. Uh, yes, for three items, it's just, just but of course, um, by by going directly from structured program languages to 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 object-oriented program languages, we skip one important step of the evolution, right? Uh, namely, function languages. Mm. First example that entered the stage of a functional program language. Any anything that comes to mind? There's loads of them, right? But which was the first one? The first one. Well, I don't know. I'm not that old. <laughs> He said, boldly lying. 
<laughs> Martin, do you know an, do you, just just checking, do you know an operating system called Emacs? No. You don't? No. <laughs> I'm sure you've come across it. It normally comes in it in, in the disguise of an editor, but Indeed. at the very core it's an operating system. And that is funny enough, that is actually written in Lisp. Okay. Lisp goes back to also late 60s, early 70s, when people had this idea of constructing a computer, including software, that was able to simulate a human brain in terms of something called artificial in brackets intelligence. Mm -hmm. Because Lisp was one of the first languages to implement AI software. And as I said, you're talking MIT, you're talking 70s here. And functional programming languages introduce something like, for example, anonymous functions like lambdas. Hmm. Everything more or less. No, 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 no. They already had that in alcohol already, lambdas. Did they? Mm hmm. Well, going back, actually, they did have them plan calculus, but. No, I mean, uh, Lisp was actually, any idea what Lisp stands Lisp, we for? Need, we need or... someone older on the show that can talk about functional. <laughs> Martin, any, any idea what LISP stands for? It's the uh, acronym. Oh, oh, not not speaking with a limp, you mean? Oh. No, 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 exactly. No, it stands actually for something called LISP processor. And that's exactly the idea, the initial idea behind it, because the most fundamental data structure in the in, in LISP was actually a list. Okay. okay. As in you had a head of a list, and then you had a uh, tail of the list, a like a recursive structure. What if you don't have a list? <clears throat> you have something called an atom. Okay. What if you have a set? You can implement that as a list. <laughs> you just have to make sure that, that items don't repeat, the, that, that list entries do not repeat themselves. Hmm. Because okay. there are no such things as two identical items in a list, right? And uh, Sorry, in the set. Yeah, but then it's a set. Okay. Anyway, okay. So, fine. Yes, okay. A list-based language. Hmm. And that was Lisp, yes. And these are still used today because Emacs, as we all know, is one of the most fav famous, favorite, fav famous, popular, sorry, popular um, editors that are that are around. I suppose, especially with with um, old school people like me. That's a good question. Martin, of course, prefers Vim for some reason. I don't know why, but exactly, Vim would be Vim would be way too hipster yeah. for him. <laughs> okay, what came after uh, object-oriented languages, Martin? Nothing much. Oh, they're, right? they're still um, around quite a lot, object-oriented languages, aren't they not? <laughs> uh, Java, Java Kotlin, Scala, Julia. Mm. That's it, I think, for the recent editions, because Go... Lang, Rust would all would at mo at best considered to be abstract data type supporting languages. Mm. I think the Rust people are working on object orientation, okay. but I'm not too sure what the exact status at the at the very moment is. But um, version 43, 42 at best supported abstract data types, like the original Rust definition. Hmm. Um, yeah. Well, anyway, so after. Uh, after the generation of Pascal's and what have you, came the fourth generation languages. But they are dead, right? Uh, unfortunately so, yes. 
they were. Well, no, she wasn't dead. <laughs> you say that? <laughs> Full disclosure, people. Martin is a believer in something called Postgres. I'm not saying you're the only one, Martin. I'm just saying. <laughs> yes, um, SQL uh, being, being one a of the database, unlike <laughs> some in-memory nonsense. <laughs> SQL, of course, would be the example, uh, would be exception that proves that, that, that point that actually most of the fourth generation, fourth oh, generation languages are, are pretty much dead. Well, do you have any, uh, do you have any example of a fourth generation language that is still used in production apart from SQL? That's a good question. It, it, um, it, does ABAP still exist? Or did they change that? Well, actually, you have a point because I think it's around, but would that, but would that be a true fourth generation language? I think it's not so for, for the hipsters listening to this, to this podcast. <laughs> ABBA, of course, would be, <laughs> no, ABBA, of course, would be a program language invented by, by a company called SAP in the 70s, if I'm not completely mistaken, as in the, as in the first language that SAP used to implement their functionality in terms of ERP and CRM and the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Funny enough, they made the move to Java late nineties, I think. Did they? Okay. Yes. When they in some when they invented something called there's there's an enterprise bus in SAP. It's not NetBeans. It's something else. Uh, you find the links in the show notes, essentially, and that was the first Java implementation that they used to essentially facilitate communication. Between the different components of, of an SAP system. Okay. Netweaver, that's it. Netweaver, yeah. Netweaver was their answer okay. to, to proper enterprise service bus as an ESB. And that was invented, I think, mid late nineties for mm. said reason. Because as we all know, SAP systems are not, are not normally used in corner shops, but rather in enterprises beyond a certain size. Because only they, have the funds at their disposal to, yeah. to, 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 to finance SAP projects. Yeah. Yep. Mm. But apart from ABAP and SQL, there's, there's, there's nothing that comes to mind in terms of a, of a fourth generation language that has survived. No, no, let's, let's announce fifth generation. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. What's yeah, fifth yeah. generation then? Well, the one that comes after four. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> any, any examples, Martin? I think there were two attempts uh, at it, but um, yeah, uh, still not quite. It, it was mainly um, the idea was that that became self-generating code, right? But uh, hasn't quite happened yet. No. So what came afterwards? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing much. Nothing much new, right? Uh, well, people keep reinventing the same things. Um, That's exactly it. Hmm. Some some do a better job than others, I have to say. But, yeah. hmm. So with that, okay. we'd like to conclude this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, people. <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, if you're um, if you're studying, uh, I don't know, computer science or whatever it is, to, uh, or or any. Even in secondary school, I think they are shoving Python at everybody, right? And, you know, there's nothing, um, 
it makes more sense to start with something closer to how uh what's closer to assembler right in my opinion so, okay yeah, i mean python python is probably a good example because it started out pretty much uh like an object language and uh, it had uh, hmm. lambdas from the very day one and but over the last 30 years, that language has just been refining things because Python as such, whether it's two or three, and most people probably will shoot me for it, but if you take a very close look at the core, Python did not bring anything striking new to the table because all of these concepts were pretty much unknown already in the language. They have been around for decades. Same yeah. goes, by the way, same goes for Rust and Java. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yes, it's curious. Um, why these uh, events keep repeating itself? But then, <laughs> and and people invent language, new languages all the time, right? I mean, Rust has been around for the last what ten years, to eleven years. Okay. Julia. Julia is what seven years old, five years old, something like this. Kotlin is around the same age. Scala probably, yeah. Go Golang goes back to twenty or seven, if I'm completely mistaken. Maybe earlier than that. Right. But again, from a from an from an innovation perspective, what does Golang bring to the table? Okay, third of increased parallelism, all the rest of it, but you had that before. Occam, for example, rings a bell, right? Occam was long dead now. It was, I think, invented in the 80s. And Occam was actually the answer to the increased requirement for parallelism at, this, at the time. But nobody used Occam anymore. Hmm. So again, it's not something new. Uh, same goes for us. If you take a look at the multiprocessing facilities that Rust provides, hmm. um, yes, Golang is not too far away, and and other languages come very close too. So there's no there's no real innovation there. Of course, this is a very provocative statement. If you have different opinions, <laughs> please send feedback to feedback at Linux You. Yeah. Um, no. It's it's interesting. Um, what do you need from a language, right? It's a, it's, a, it's probably the question too. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, languages are like are like are like cars, right? It's, yeah, cars it's different to for cars. Cars get you mm. cars get you from A to B, right? Program languages basically abstract from the operating system. Hmm. Use program yeah. languages in order to avoid to having to implement your algorithm and assembler, yeah. which is the basic mm. common denominator yeah. that most of that most computers understand directly. Mm-hmm. Because this is the way they work. Unless you're going for microcontrollers or transputers or um, TensorFlow processing units, because these would be specialized things, or even just basic GPUs, right? So, but at the, at the end of the day, um, if I'm talking about any major CPU architecture, like like Cisco ones, like Intel, like mm-hmm. RISC ones, like ARM or RISC-V or whatever, they they can all understand assembler. Not a big deal. C comes pretty close to assembler, but other programming languages offer more abstraction uh, layers. I mean, this is uh, it's, it's probably the. 
I mean, she's probably the good, a good example for the case where people still prefer to be very close to the machine because yeah. at yeah. the very end of the day, mm-hmm. C is kind of close to the hardware level. Mm-hmm. It doesn't provide an order of, a, a lot of instruction, but if you take a look at the code base that is out there on, on place like GitHub and so forth, or just take the, the Linux operating system kernel, it's written in C for a reason. Yeah. That code base is, is, is now about 30 years old. And if you take a look at many of the frameworks like GT, GTK, like QT, they are all written in C. So yeah, there's a lot of uh, major projects that are also written in C, like Redis, Postgres, you know, it's, yeah. as you say, uh, closer to the um, hardware, the better. Um, plus, plus the fact that you get a very rich ecosystem for C. Other mm-hmm. programming languages like Python and Rust and Golang are catching on. Yeah. But, uh, but, but the fact is also that the compilers have matured for the last at least 20 to 30 years. Mm-hmm. At That's that true. time, Golang or even Rust wasn't even invented. Yeah. Okay. So what do you look for in a programming language? Good question. Probably. Learning curve, as in how quickly I can learn the programmer language. Uh, never mind the paradigm, because as I said, there haven't been any fundamentally new paradigms around for the last at least 20 years, mm-hmm. if not longer. The ecosystem, the availability of suitable compiler suites on any given platform, and what people have been doing for that program language and need to say how that program language interface to other things. There are two common denominators around C bindings and of course for a foreign function interface. So if a program language doesn't support this, it's probably not for me because you always find a borderline case that where you cannot get an existing implementation for, but you, so at that, at, at that case, you either have the choice to write it yourself Hmm. or to have to incorporate a different program language. And early examples for integration approaches like the JNI, the Java Native Interface, go directly down that route because when Java was invented, like mid-90s, there was an awful lot of code already existing written that, that, that was written in C. Mm-hmm. So the, the Java people made one smart move to provide an interface that would allow Java programs running on the JVM as mm-hmm. a Java virtual machine to use that C code base with all the disadvantages that that uh, approach had, like not managed code, sorry, unmanaged code rather, missing memory safety and all the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, that's that's. So, Martin, what are you looking for in a programming language? Uh, most of those things. The One of the main things is readability, I think. Um, uh, easy to learn. It goes hand in hand with that. Um, interfacing to other... Uh, I don't personally need that as much as you do. <laughs> uh, not pro- not programming any um, devices as such. Uh, so I'm happy with that. But yeah, the ecosystems available, libraries, etc. Mm. Uh, yeah, 
because uh, there is this is all about reuse again. Why why, why write something if someone else has already done it? That's exactly it. Hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, programming languages are like cars. Um, because if I say women, I will get shot, so I won't say women. I think um, neither of those are. Let me elaborate on the car yeah. angle here. <laughs> uh, cars, or all the cars, especially if they're working as in functioning, bring you, take you from A to B. Some cars are faster than others. Some cars can pack more payload than others. Some cars are easier to drive than others. And that's exactly true with the with program language. Basically, it depends on the use case. If I have a, a challenge at hand, I normally take a look at what's out there already. And then uh, non-functional requirements come into play, like how fast has the generated code to be in order, in order to meet the, the performance requirements that, this, that the particular use case at hand demands, that sort of thing. Um, for for example, if if I'm looking for sub-millisecond latency on a given RCPU architecture, I can normally safely rule out interpreter-based programming languages like JavaScript, Python, or what's another good example, Lisp, for that matter. Um, yes and no. I mean, there's obviously uh, C interpreters for, for Python and oh, sorry, um, Scythe and, and friends. So uh, uh, if you can. With the with the drawbacks that these approaches bring brings to mm. yes, of course. Yeah, no, it's it's about it depends as you say what the use uses. If you are programming a low latency device, then yes, that makes sense. Uh, if you are doing a um, uh, a project that doesn't have such requirements, then you go for the easier approach. Absolutely. Hmm. It okay. all depends, people. Yes. So maybe we should start our own programming language. <laughs> why? Well, why not? So you can get a hipster following. <laughs> <laughs> any any final fair any final farewell <laughs> greetings to these hipsters, Mark? As you keep talking about them. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. I don't. Um, yeah. You don't know mm. any hipsters, okay? <laughs> I haven't been to California for a while. <laughs> They don't live in the UK, no? No, no, no. They, they have to live in... in, in uh, yeah, we don't have... Uh, mind you, the, we do have coffee shops as well. But um, hmm. Especially yeah. that... You, you also have coffee, shop, uh, coffee shops in the, in the Netherlands, right? I believe so. I believe so. We drink, Excellent. We do, we do drink coffee, yeah. Dawa Egberts is a long-established coffee brand. <laughs> yes. Very good. <laughs> Okay, any any passing, any final remarks before we close off the show? Yes, well, final remark is, um, I think, for, for the hipsters out there that haven't, had the, the pleasure of programming in Algol 86. Do check it out. It wasn't that 68? Hmm? 68. Wasn't that 68? That's what I, that's what I said, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Maybe yeah. I'm old. Okay. <laughs> Now that the famous episode on programming languages has finally come to its conclusion, it's start to it's time to cover the pox. What's your pox? 
Well, we can't say it's famous yet because it hasn't gone out. But yes, it will be famous, I'm sure. Um, okay, so my pox of the week is a book again because I do like books. Um, not that I have time to read them, but <laughs> they are quite useful for many things. Uh, which is called Cracking Codes with Python. Ah, finally, you you do you intend to learn Python once again? No, no, no. It's just a bit of a hobby. You just want to crack codes. That's okay. Yeah, this is a long time since I learned anything properly. I have to say. Hmm. This is Python. Yes, yes. Well, this is the beauty about Python. You don't have to learn it. You don't. Okay. No, it's it's great. It just writes itself. Just works. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. What is your pox of the week then, Chris? Uh, I don't have any, but before we go to to my petty anti-pox, why don't you a little elaborate a little bit on that book? Okay. Right. So this is a um, well, as as the title says. <laughs> uh, do, are you interested in cracking uh, any codes? Well, you know, obviously you have, there are many different. Um, coding algorithms, as in algorithms to create codes. Um, and should you have uh, powerful GPUs at your disposal, then um, this comes in quite handy to calculate <laughs> various things you might want to find out. So, um, cracking code means like a brute force attack? Like password cracking yeah, but then you different. Um, and how, well. where do the GPUs feature? They are uh, installed in a machine called a computer. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I get that, Martin. But okay. uh, that, that book covers the unknown no, no, art no, of, no, of, no, of no. taking Python source code and translating that to something that the CUDA interface can understand so that, that the GPU can execute the code? No, no, no. This is a theoretical book, right? So ah! that's, <laughs> that's, that's implementation. I see. So why does it, why is it called basic cracking code with Python? Because it covers um, various coding algorithms that you can implement and decoding algorithms you can implement with Python. <laughs> um, okay. I thought it wasn't about the implementation. Not on the implementation on GPUs, indeed. I'm, ah, I'm sorry. Okay, I got lost, as I usually do. I know, it's very confusing. <laughs> it is indeed. It is indeed. Uh, links in the show notes, of course, if I can find this book. <laughs> do, do, do you need a proper computer with a GPU in it one day, maybe? I do have proper computers with GPUs in them, yes. <laughs> a a non-on-chip um, uh, GPU. Uh, I think I have one or two, yes, uh -huh. with a separate GPU built into that, with graphic card, yes. Thank you. <laughs> Say again? From which century, dare I ask? <laughs> Last one, I think. <laughs> All right. Okay, okay. onto my, on, onto my, uh, onto my antipox. Courier authentication demon people, if you're listening, please do something about the debugging level. Uh, last, I, 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 I ventured last weekend to tell my postfix instance to use the authentication demon that comes with courier to authenticate people when they want to send emails. And it took me way too long to properly 
get to the bottom of the issues that I was facing because of the debugging information that the authentication team didn't provide. As a matter of fact, eventually I had to resort to S-Trace to see what was going on on the system call level. And that's not something you should have to do. There was a recent episode on this one, yes, but (laughs) it may come as a surprise to you or shocking news, Brother Martin, that S-Trace and myself have been friends for at least the last 20 years. (laughs) So... Only 20. Hmm, interesting. Sure, it came in handy. That. So, so I'm a yeah, Korean people. If you're listening, get in touch and I give you some hints of how to do it better. Or I may even submit a pull request at some stage. And with that, we are almost at something called the feedback. What do you mean, almost? Why almost? We are at the feedback, aren't we? We are at the feedback, yes. <laughs> Indeed, we are. Okay, that's right. I thought I missed something. <laughs> And if feedback. you can find it, Indeed. yes, yes. feedback. S-E-O-1-E-21, feedback. And yes, feedback, uh, a guy called, well, not a guy, but rather one of the, Lino, one of the, Indigo, sorry, no, um, one of the HPR hosts by the name of operator oh. comments on the last, uh, on the previous, but last, no, on the second last show. Episode 21, yes. Episode 21, yes, thank you, Ron. Greetings and great show. And uh, the rest is its technical um, details like, now we've got kernels that are like a terabyte and all the rest of it. He also just discovered NetHawks in Linux. And of course, he's a big TMAX fan, as in the terminal multiplexer. But then people who isn't, right? Mm. Who is beyond the 25 uh, years of age stage. And of course, he sent that uh, email to something called feedback at linuxinlaws.eu. And uh, people, if you have feedback, no, please. No, sorry, sorry. Of course, you're right. He posted it on Hacker Public Radio. My mistake, operator. Um, I do apologize. Yes, he posted it on Hacker Public Radio, and I could, of course, he could have sent this to feedback at linuxinlaws.eu. But both ways are welcome in terms of how to get in touch with us. And the email address is feedback at linuxinlaws.eu, but you can also, like operator did, post a comment on the HPR website on the episode. Hmm. And with that, we'd like to thank you for listening and keep on coding. Any final remarks from your side, Martin, before we close off the show? Oh, sorry. No, keep on coding. Sounds good. Uh, Keep on (laughs) commenting. Keep on feedbacking. Yes. Keep on listening. Excellent. This is... The Linux in-laws. You come for the knowledge. But stay for the madness. Thank Thank you you for listening. listening. This podcast is licensed under the latest version of the Creative Commons license. Type attribution share like. Credits for the intro music go to Blue Sea Roosters for the song Salute Margaret. To Twin Flames for their piece called The Flow used for the segment intros. And finally, to Celestial Ground for their song Sweet Justice, used by the dark side. You'll find these and other ditties licensed under CC at Chimando, a website dedicated to liberate the music industry from choking copyright legislation and other crap concepts.
You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Thank you.